What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today on the show, we have a new friend of mine as of this past year, Henrik Linder, the bass player from the band Dirty Loops. Now, Dirty Loops and I did a collaborative album that just came out. It's called Turbo. And you know what? We did it all remotely, pretty much. They did their stuff together. I did the stuff with my horn section here in Minneapolis. And you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute. I thought I saw videos of you guys playing together. That's the first thing I need to address because you may have listened to the album and really enjoyed it and may have seen the videos and be like, whoa, that looks really cool. Are those guys all in the same room? And the answer is no. That's some visual trickery, but not a lot of trickery. It actually has a lot of technical mastery involved in it. This is the most common question I get asked. That's why I'm addressing it right away. Hey, were you guys actually doing that live? Were you like in the same room? Yes, we're doing it live, but it's just Dirty Loops did their stuff in Sweden and I did my stuff in Minneapolis. Now, Aaron, the drummer of Dirty Loops and I got very nerdy and very technical with each other. We're like, okay, what are we gonna do with these videos? We both had this idea. He said, oh, I love these lights. We used these in our previous videos. I'd love to use them again. I said, sure, I'll just like find those same lights. Unfortunately, I had to like rent them from the other side of the country and have them freighted over to me. Uh, anyways, we said, all right, we're gonna use the same lighting, just kind of black background, some sort of similar looking rugs. He sent me like pictures of his rugs and, so, and, and the type of room that they were gonna be in. And I just kind of tried to make a duplicate set of that, like a mirror image set of that. And we said, okay, but that's not enough. Like we need to make measure the height of every one of your lights and how far apart they are. Measure the height of the camera off the ground, the center of the lens from the ground and how far the end of the lens is from the band. And let's make it so like I'm always focusing my energy on your side of the stage. You guys focus your energy towards mine. So it feels like we're a cohesive unit. And we got very technical. And even to the point where it was like, all right, which model camera are you using? I've got all these Sony cameras. And he's like, oh, we use Blackmagic cameras. I said, okay, fine. I'll, I have some friends with the Blackmagic cameras. I'll rent those. And we used literally the same cameras, same settings. I had him send me everything, like what the white balance settings on the camera are. All that stuff to try to make it look like we are in the same room. And we did a pretty good job, I think. And seeing as I fooled a lot of people, but some people are like, wait a minute. Are you guys not in the same room? You're never really in the same shot together. That's why. Technical mastery combined with magic. David Blaine's entire thing. Dang, David Blaine would be a dope guest on this podcast. I want to hear what he has to say about music. Anyways, today's guest, like I said, Henrik is an incredible, absolute master of his craft. The bass player, I first got hip to him when I was maybe in college or something, seeing some videos that were going around of Dirty Loops doing these insane arrangements of covers and just like, oh my gosh, this trio is insane. And I always thought to myself, but they need a guitar. I would sit at home and play along with their videos and just like, oh my gosh, but what if there was guitar in here? Well, that's what this album is that we made. And also, horn writing and producing of the album with them and um, just, a, you know, that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I'm one of those people It's like, I bring a lot more to an album than just playing guitar. You know? I don't know. I'm a writer, producer, engineer, all those things. 
And they are more than just musicians as well. They have so much technical skill when it comes to arranging, writing, all the things that they do. Super fun project. And Henrik and I talk about that. I ask him about a lot of just his approach to playing things and being from Sweden, how he approaches lyric writing and how they think about writing in general because all their stuff is in English, but it's their second language. So without further ado, here's my interview with Henrik Linder. This season of Wong Notes podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there and that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Well, Henrik, thank you so much for being on the podcast. What a blast to have you. This is the format that I'm used to talking to you in. Even though we've made an album together, we have never met in person. No. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> kind of weird. You wouldn't have been able to do that 20 years ago, but yeah, it's cool. Like, I'm glad it worked. Yeah, I read a, a story about the guy from Death Cab for Cutie or something. He like started a band called the postal service and the way they made an album is by like sending things back and forth through the postal service and it seemed so awesome at the time and now it's just like oh you mean you'd have to wait three days to get the files after i sent them now it's like hey uh can you send this baseline yep i got it right now okay uh it's in pro tools in three minutes you know it's crazy so it was it was really fun to make an album transatlantic and also yeah pretty crazy yeah, it was pretty crazy, but it, like I'm really happy we pulled it off. So it was uh, it was such a blast to do this thing and like most people know Dirty Loops as one of the early viral bands on YouTube. You know, you you guys were in at such a great time and just something that was really unique when when you were first starting the band, what was the vision for the immediate future when you were doing it and how did you think it would grow in the last 11 years in the beginning we didn't really have any plan whatsoever it was just that the three of us got together and like basically got to do what everybody else thought was super cheesy at the time i mean like <laughs> we overplayed everything and did too much on everything and it was just like uh, we were always told not to do that so it was kind of like you know when all three of us we were like kind of young at the time like got together and like, then we could like core everything out and it was just like you know, we did those jam sessions and we had like, in the beginning, we had like three covers or something like that. And we just played them over and over because it was like such a lot of fun to do it. So that's really how it started. With the YouTube thing, that was really not a plan. Like we, we put up a Lady Gaga cover of Just Dance in 2010, I think. And um, like the only reason for that was because we wanted to like book a gig eventually with this thing. 
So we wanted to have a video up there so that we could send to people. And I still don't know like how it spread to people, but I think uh, Facebook and YouTube and stuff didn't have the same algorithm thing. So it was just like everything like uh, was visualized visualized equally in feeds and stuff like that. So it got shared a lot on Facebook by our friends and then it like spread to other people. So it was just like a word of mouth thing. It was really not a plan at all. It was just like stupid luck, I guess, that it happened. Oh yeah, and I mean, what's interesting that you're saying, so I remember being in college like, oh my gosh, check this video out. Like I remember sitting at my college and somebody was like, dude, you gotta see this video. Look at, look at these guys. You know, I think it was probably like, yeah, the, the Just Dance video or maybe one of the Britney Spears covers or something. And it was, it was kind of like the proverbial middle finger to the college professor that says, don't overplay everything. And the producers that say, don't overplay anything. But you guys, so you were intentional about like, you know what, let's actually just make that our thing for these videos. Yeah, it was really, you know, whenever someone had an idea, I mean, it could be good or bad, but it worked for the three of us for the thing that we like. But it was just like, everybody just do their thing and do it to the max. And obviously that's not for everybody. And it's not like the way I would play in every situation. But in Dirty Loops, it was like, kind of like, yeah, go for it, go for it, go for it. It was always, you know, that energy. And I don't know, I think it was refreshing for all of us at that time. So it was just, I don't know, a hobby project that was a lot of fun that actually turned into something. So I'm really happy about that. Well, I think it's also, it was really fun to watch because it's like, all right, this feels like the sort of thing where they're just going for complete arrangement. Like, oh, like you say, kind of overplay, overarrange everything over a tune that's very familiar or pop song. And it's all done with, with the highest level of musical excellence. It's kind of ripe for being viral, especially at that time. To me, it feels like a genius move. But also what you just said, where you said, we're looking to play some live gigs, so we decided to post a cover. Was the original intention of the band being, like to me, I always thought from the beginning, I thought, oh, this is a band who like, their vision is to do insane arrangements of pop songs. But was that your vision or was it like, we want to do original music and this will get some eyes on us and get some attention and some buzz? No, we didn't really want to make any, and we didn't have any plan, but we only did covers because we never thought about like that actually we could make a living out of Dirty Loops. It was just like, yeah, let's just go with songs that we know so we don't really have to write songs. We would just wanted to play together in like a rehearsal studio. That really was like the only intentions in the beginning. It was like a product that was just for fun. And uh, it was when we signed with our first manager that he was like, yeah, you guys should try to write some original songs and like we were kind of hesitant and then we like started doing that and like it went pretty well as as well but it's always been like you know i think when derlips have worked best it's always been this like spur of the moment ideas like you know someone just does something and doesn't think uh, think too much and like that's when things uh, have been the best for us totally so you guys are a work off of your instincts sort of band yeah very much i i'll say we i mean like it's we take forever to finish stuff because we're really slow, but the work process is very much like, oh yeah, I got this like weird idea. Okay, let's try something to do something with that. And then it's just like, we, we go from that. So it's not that we plan ahead a, a long time in the future, or at least like when we have done that, it's been even slower. But I mean, like it was good with this album as well, because it was like the first time someone really like kicked our asses. Like, guys, 
we need you need to move faster like because you <laughs> whatever like we send something to you like we got it back like really fast and it's like oh oh we get to step up our game and like uh, <laughs> we gotta work <laughs> well there's also just there's one of me and i guess the horn section too so when i was working section is yeah. kind of like that's a lot of work like i mean if yeah we and all that it would probably have taken forever as well. So it was a good learning experience, you know, like it, that we had someone that really like, you know, did things fast and everything. So we had to like cope with that and like become faster in working than we normally are. So yeah, it was a blast. I think it, it really helped for both of us. So I benefited a lot also because I noticed that you guys were very instinctual just in our text threads, in our zoom hangs together of of the four of us or whatever where it was okay here's this idea okay let's go with it go with it okay you know like kind of everybody would just shoot out an idea and it's like yeah that sounds awesome let's let's do it yeah hey let's do thriller in 12 8 yeah that sounds awesome <laughs> uh I, I think i can play that austin auto pattern in 12 8 and kind of mess with it i think it was really fun or for me i more than think for me it was very fun to kind of share each other's processes because even though, yes, like I, I'm a pretty fast worker on stuff and, you know, I'm in my studio kind of all day. So it's like, oh, I need to do this thing. I can just blah, 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 and then send it out. But then to have you guys also say like, okay, that's great instinctually. Now let's take a minute to develop it. And then it developed in a different way. And we kind of explored the different options with stuff. I, th- I thought that was really great. So your process, which surprised me, is that it was very instinctual, but... In some ways, it doesn't sound as instinctual for me as a listener the first time through because it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much happening. There's so much coordination. I think oftentimes when people think about something that's really instinctual, it's just like, oh, there's not a lot of care involved in it or it's just like off the cuff. Yeah, I mean, like with that thing, it, it, it's not really like that. Like it's something instinctual, uh, but then we kind of like, go back and listen to it and like oh yeah maybe this could be better and you know like it it could be sometimes months doing that with some songs so it's like oh it doesn't really feel super great but it's it's also like it's a dangerous thing of going down that road because a lot of the times like when we release things that we weren't like maybe not a hundred percent happy with like they grew on us later on and it's like the songs that we thought were masterpieces was not good and then like the one that we felt like was halfway there actually turned out to be more fun to play live and like it, it was better so like your judgment is kind of like I, I don't i don't know i don't really trust it all the time with that either so like yeah it's good to let go of it sometimes as well yeah and to have other people's opinions like for me I, I, when i sent you i think i sent you like 20 demos it's like i don't know i really like some of these i'm not totally in love with some of these what do you guys think? Like, here's some kind of half-written songs and some that are kind of complete. And some of the ones that I thought were like, eh, I don't know if I love these or not. You and Aaron were like, oh, yeah, 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 let's, let's, let's go that. I can build something on that. It's like, oh, okay, awesome, cool. And then it turned out to be these tunes that now I'm really excited about. So sometimes we get in our own heads or we just need somebody else to say like, oh, I, that is a diamond. It might be a small diamond right now or like that's a, that's a piece of gold covered in dirt. Let me let me refine it and and add something to it or yeah but it was like also with the tunes a lot of the tunes that you sent like when we recorded them we didn't really have the melody written for them and like kind of a i think it turned out it really well because it was kind of like we couldn't overplay on those tunes as much because like if we left no space for the melody so 
it was kind of like you put down like a more of a solid foundation on those songs and uh, so that you could go with it. And I think the end result was really, really good. I, I mean, like you learn in each of those like projects you do. And it's, it was a fun thing doing that because it was different to the way we worked normally. So for those that are listening, a handful of the songs, basically we, I made a demo for and Dirty Loops kind of did their thing. Okay, let's add this section. Oh, let's, let's go here with it. Let's add this. Oh, let's actually modulate. Okay, great, cool. Then it was like, all right, you guys record your rhythm section stuff and then I'll build everything else around it. So like he's saying, there's not a lot of hits to get. But I was just saying, I remember being like, just do whatever hits you want. I'll build that into the melody. It'll actually like give me more of a framework. So it was an interesting writing process because it felt a little bit backwards but also oftentimes that can create a new tunnel for creativity. It's like, okay, all of a sudden I have to go down this lane. I have to do a hit on the E of two and the and of four. Okay, cool. I'm just going to make those the strong notes of the melody on this. And then we just went back and forth, which was a really fun way to write. And yeah, it's kind of different than a lot of people do. Yeah, I think it worked out. It was a, it was a really cool thing, so. Yeah. Okay, your chops are freaking insane dude i remember when you first sent me that follow the light <laughs> there's that lick and i was like oh, henry come on man and then you're like no actually aaron wrote that lick and i was like wait wait what yeah yeah you know? but it's always like that like the reason why the bass song like bass parts are so weird is because he writes them in like caps lock on a computer like not even with a keyboard but it sits like with the computer and, yeah like, put in midi bass and like yeah i want you to play like this Oh, I don't really know how to. I'll just figure it out. And uh, I know. Well, it's yeah, it's good to have friends that push us to do things that are seemingly impossible. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you always get around like doing it somehow. But I really had to experiment with like putting my hands in different positions in order to play a lot of the stuff that he he does, because you kind of have to change in between uh, like different techniques in order to make it happen. But I mean, he wants it a certain way, and then like. I guess uh, like it usually turns out well uh, when it does. But there was always like, you know, some 60 note pattern pattern that like, if it just would skip this note, it would be really nice. It would sit really well, but it's like, no, you have to do it. And then like the fingering like turns into a nightmare and then you have to sit and practice it for a long time. Dude, I, I actually practiced before this album session, I practiced my chops more than kind of like since college. Just so much, just, just different types of lines and stuff. But I'm curious, you know, speaking of practicing and chops, there's some general principles about getting fast. And this is a guitar podcast, but there's a lot of bass players that are going to listen. And there's a lot of crossover, obviously, with the fretting hand. But are, what, are, what have been your techniques in general with building speed and control on the instrument? I think it's like that you need to stay like focus on staying relaxed all the time and like mm. try to make the, like if you're going to play like really fast. But I practiced that, those things a lot when I was a kid, like when I got into like uh, because the technical abilities were kind of like the thing I had an easy time practicing. And then there was a lot of other things that I really needed to spend way more time on later. But I guess it was like, you know, try to minimize the movement and like become the most efficient with things and like to kind of feel relaxed about it. But it's also like 
if you play on a fast song, it's like, uh, I think one thing that a lot of people like do the wrong way is that they try to feel like every quarter note of the subdivision and then like become very stressful. Like if you think, and think one, two, three, four, one, two, instead of like thinking the phrases over like maybe eight bars, like so, so like it, stay relaxed and like see it as a flow that will land on a certain note and like, that could help the feel of uh, playing faster lines or whatever. But I don't know, like I obviously have to practice the technical stuff for their loops, but that's mostly why I do it. Like when I have to learn a new bass part, because I think there are other weaknesses in my playing that needs to be addressed more than, than the technique right now. What do you feel like are your weaknesses on the instrument? I think like some harmonic stuff is uh, like there's certain kind of pro chord progression. I mean, there is for everybody, I guess, but uh, I have problems with that. And then like, of course, there's always like, I think you can never practice time too much either. Like there are certain kind of like grooves that you're not familiar with and certain kind of feels that I like to practice. And like whenever I feel like that I play with something and that it doesn't really lock, I try to sit with that and like get comfortable with those things. But it's just like, you know, general things like time harmony technique like yeah stuff like that so what does your practice routine normally look like if you have an hour to practice what does it normally look like one thing i'm practicing on right now is that i want to learn more about like counterpoint but i have been too lazy to actually study it so i try to fake it you know <laughs> to play two uh, two melodies at once but it's really hard on a string instrument but uh, and i can't do it at all but it's just like one of those long-term goals that I have, that I like that I sit with and try to do every now and then. So right now, it would probably be doing that because it's something like maybe in two or three years that I could start to do. But I like to set up those like long-term goals and like kind of go for it a little bit at a time. But that's something I'm working on right now. The counterpoint thing on the guitar or the bass is super hard because oftentimes our hands are trying to catch up with our ears. Yeah. Like I can hear these two notes moving. But like, how does it work fingering wise? And like, where do I need to do weird string skips to make it work? Yeah, I know it, it is. It is a challenge like that on, on a piano. It's it's not in the same way, but uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just like a sound that I that I like and that I want to be able to do at some point. Yeah. But, but yeah, it is a challenge on any string instrument, I think. Yeah, totally. Okay. The type of person, the type of ears and brain required to have tempered frets <laughs> is a unique one because not everybody is is uh as focused i think you're you and like i saw charlie hunter had the fan frets on his like eight string guitar and you know the fan frets thing started happening and then i saw you with these frets that are looking like squiggly lines like an like a second grader drew the frets on <laughs> and i was thinking what is going on here so Tell me a little bit about when that started for you, and are you just completely neurotic about intonation? Uh, no, not at all. The, the biggest reason was that I could try it, and that they, like, I, in my head, like, I think it tuned a little better, but I don't have, like, any perfect picture that I could, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, two cents. I, I, I don't hear that at all, so. But it's, it was, like, an issue on recordings with a lot of straight uh, fret basses that I, like, found myself like tuning one chord and then like I was going to play the next one and I was like, oh, this one is out of tune and that doesn't happen with these as much. 
But it is also with the true temperament, it tunes better in certain keys than others. So it tunes better in the guitar keys like E, A, D, G, C. And like in B flat, A flat, it's like more off. Those keys that are more off is still like more on than I feel it is with, with uh, regular frets. But you can hear like the difference if you play like an E triad to an E flat triad. Like uh, the E flat tri triad is not in tune as much as the E triad. I don't think about it that much, but I, I still feel that for chordal playing, it makes kind of, it makes a difference. So I think like they're better in tune than with regular frets, but I don't know. On the other hand, like there's a ton of uh, players that plays with regular frets on all recordings, and it never bothered me ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, if Jacob Collier is playing instruments with straight frets, and he's hearing things that are half a cent off. Ah, yeah, I don't know, okay. like Jacob Collier would probably like be annoyed um, with the like, oh, this E flat is out of tune. Like he would yeah, probably but the, hear yeah. it, but I, I won't hear it. So like, uh, it's fine for me. <laughs> That's funny. So you talked about chordal playing. Is chordal playing in dirty loops a decision out of necessity because there's because because it's a trio normally, you know, keyboards, drums, and bass, and of course Jonah sings as well, but. I'm wondering, is your approach to playing the bass different because it's a trio, or would it be different, like in the case of, of, of the album that we made where I'm playing guitar on it as well? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, different. I think for some of the songs, I'm like all over the place on that album as well. But like in some of the, the songs, I like kind of uh, played more like a normal bass player. But I, I guess it's like it's about context uh, with their loops. The other guys kind of want me to do that, but like when I play the behind pop artists, it's like then I bring a four string and like play one note at the time, and like it's it's just different. Like it's 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 also uh, I mean in Dirt Loops it's kind of like I can do whatever I want because I'm one of the artists in in that group. But like when you're behind someone else, like then I think it's like you have to have a different mindset because then it's about like uh, trying to get their vision as good as possible and try to fulfill whatever is in their heads. So it's like a very different mindset. So I guess I changed my playing, like, and also the sound, I guess, like, uh, depending on who I play with. I guarantee you there is some college kid listening right now who, who may have used an excuse of you for overplaying on a song. And now to hear you say, hey, listen, everybody, you got to play what's appropriate for the music. <laughs> I think... I, w I want that that person to to take this lesson to heart. <laughs> but on the other hand, like usually when people like ask me to record on their stuff, they usually want to have like the dirt loops kind of baseline. So totally. they often left a lot of space and like yeah, go wild, do your thing. Like that's what happens the most when I get recording jobs from people. But uh, yeah, in Sweden, I played behind some artists, and then it's not the same thing. And then you like really play way less and it's kind of a fun thing to do as well it's it's great to have both so like then i play i played a passive four with like a bunch of pedals uh you know like uh, when i did those gigs and it's a very different vibe and a different sound as well so it's fun to do that yeah and you're paying attention to different things you're focusing on different things I, yeah it's great to have that versatility now i want to ask about tone because in dirty loops you have a very scooped bass tone compared to like what the average 
base whatever is. Yeah. Right? Like, it, there's a lot of bright, there's a lot of low end, and there's some tunes, and I did not hear this until I, I listened to the isolated tracks that you sent me of your parts. On a couple of the tunes, it sounds like you're doubling the bass with a key bass or a synth bass pedal or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we do that with their loops a lot that I have to like record it, the, the bass first. And then like I have to go in and like with media and sync. It's a nightmare every time because I need to like sync all like wherever I'm late or ahead yeah. or whatever. Like I need to like uh, check that with MIDI. And then I send the MIDI to our mixer guy and he blends a bass underneath. Like a lot of the times for slap bass, when you want to have like a little extra muffle or whatever. But I mean, on, on Thriller we did that as well, but that was like, because it's like a synth bass in the original and we wanted to kind of like stay with that sound. But I think we did it in follow the light as well, but we did it on all the, al- all the tracks on the latest album, I think. Yeah. The first time I heard the recording, it's like just the bass and then send it back later. It's like, Oh, he doubled something underneath there. And it actually added, well, I, 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 I to me, it added a certain type of sub bass and it added a certain like, to it. it it added a yeah. width so what is your you say you say sometimes it adds a little bit i'm curious what like what sound is it that you use is there a particular patch or, or uh, thing? i don't know like i didn't really do it like i just did the midi and send it to jonah and aaron and simon that like did the sound so i did like a some kind of fake but it's usually you know uh, like a fake analog movie base that's in there you know, to get like, uh, it's just like to get a nice bass frequencies, but I'm really horrible at mixing. So like, I just send it away and let someone else do it. But that's basically the idea of it. But I think also for like our song work shit out, I think he, like I saw the like bass file, it was like six channels of like chorus and like one that was an overdub with like a synth bass in order to like make it sound better than the bass did. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that we, we did on that. I don't know, like, I will probably keep doing it because I like it, because you could kind of, uh, like, make certain things pop more and don't have to worry about the low end getting muddy because you can separate it afterwards. Totally. I've actually seen this. So you're, you were the first person I experienced this with. I was like, oh, my gosh, that adds <laughs> so much to the sound. And then, like, just a month and a half ago, I was doing a couple, a, a couple days of sessions in Nashville. And I was actually playing guitar and bass on the session. And, you know, it was pretty simple pop songs, kind of R&B influenced pop, whatever. And I was playing the bass parts. And then they said, okay, now can you overdub the sub bass? I was like, what? It's like, oh, yeah, that's just like what we do now. Like we just double the parts with a sub bass. So I was like, uh, okay, do you have a MIDI keyboard? And yeah, that's exactly what it was. I, I just doubled my exact part from the bass guitar on a MIDI keyboard. And then they used mostly the low frequencies from the MIDI bass, like the sub bass. It was kind of, it was more like um, like a sine wave bass thing than a Moog. I mean, I guess... Uh, yeah, similar. I mean, it could be that as well. Like, I'm not sure what they did actually, but sure. it's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds cool now. Like, all good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cool. And I had never, I had never been aware of that sort of thing, but it does add a different thing that you kind of can't get with the bass alone. yeah. I don't know, like it will be interesting to see how we do those songs live later on. I mean, we did uh, work, sh- work shit out, but yeah, it's just like 
it doesn't really sound the same. It will be whatever it will be. It will be live and it will be nice. Yeah. I mean, I think people like, I would include myself in this, that are kind of muso-heavy bands where our, where our audience is also like a high percentage of musicians. A lot of them, they just want to see you do your thing live. Yeah. You know, they don't necessarily need to hear the record live. It's just like, I want to see you do that thing you do live, in person, you know? And, and yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. So like for me, if I were, I've never seen you guys play live. If I were seeing you at a festival, it's like, yeah, I just want to see the three of you guys do your thing. And it's dope. You know, you guys haven't toured a lot. Uh, we toured a lot in 2014, but then like we kind of didn't do like we did other things in the in the band. And now we're like looking to tour a lot again. But since 2014, yeah. it's been very sporadic. But we did like probably 100 gigs in 2014 or oh, something. Oh, you did? So then, yeah. So we did like a US tour or like an Asia tour and the Europe tour. And we had like, we were a support act for Maroon 5 as well in Asia and Australia in 2015. So like those years were when we toured a lot and then it's been more sporadic after that. But uh, yeah, now we're looking to do it again as soon as we can. But it's, you, you never know these days. It feels like there could be new restrictions and like that you can't travel and stuff happens all the time. Dude, that would be an insane bill. Dirty Loops and Maroon 5. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was pretty nice. It was a fun tour. They were really nice guys as well. So it was, it was nice. Yeah, those guys are cool. I'm friends with James, the guitar player. He's oh. such a nice dude and he's so cool. I saw them in 2004, like uh, when, when they were, you know, kind of first getting hits when songs about jane came out and dude they were shredding on stage it's a very different show now i love the show now i'm i'm a huge maroon 5 fan but when i saw them in 2004 it was like adam levine was shredding at like the end it was like a like dave Matthews style where they do like the song and then they jam for 10 minutes at the end it was that sort of format like they would play their songs out of these incredible pop songs and then they would just have these huge jams at the end of it. And I, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Yeah, but I remember that as well. When, what was it called? Like this love or that song? Like when it yeah. was on the radio, it was like, it's a funk song on, on the radio. And it was like, you, at that time, I haven't heard that in years. Yeah. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about Distro Kid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, I have a question about Sweden. Okay. It seems to be this hotbed for music, and there's a lot of different types of sounds. Now, you might have a different perspective being from there and living there. But it's like, I've, I've heard so much amazing music and so much great writing from Sweden. You know, we can go as far back as we want, but, you know, from, you know, just as far as the modern era with, like, you guys, with Sigrid, 
I really like Sigrid and like a lot of the pop producers that are there as writers and producers. What is happening there? What is the scene like? I, I think like one reason why there are so many musicians and writers, uh, I think I might be wrong about this, but I think like Sweden is the biggest music expert in the world per capita, uh, mm. if that's a word in English, but uh, like, because yeah. it's a small country, it's only 10 million people living here. But there is one thing I think that Sweden has like a system that, that I don't know, like if any other country has, it's like a thing called culture school. So like from age nine, like kids uh, for free could pick up an instrument and start playing it. Wow. I mean, they don't have to do it. Like if you want to, you could do it. And uh, and then you could kind of go on from there. But I think that's like a system that's kind of unique for Sweden and that's been around for a very long time. So a lot of people like pick up an instrument. And I mean, a, a lot of people stop doing it, but it's it's still like, you know, people could try like starting to play the guitar or drums or saxophone or whatever at age nine. And it's like one of those things that you do after school, kind of. And uh, I, I think like also a lot of those people turn into writers because they, I I remember like I had a teacher that got me recording in a studio when I was like 14 or something like that. And he took like time off to do that. And like people were just really nice around there and like really uh, put in effort to like do things for kids musically. So that system has been good for Swedish musicians, I think. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's it's been really cool. I feel like for me, it, I'm, I'm only bringing up my own situation because it might correlate in some way. I, I grew up in Minnesota and I still live in Minneapolis. So here, it's basically winter at least six months out of the year, right? And yeah, there's like not here. as many <laughs> out, outdoor activities to do. So a lot of people are like, I mean... Minneapolis is a very musician-heavy town. There's a lot of music. And although there's a not, not a ton of large national acts out of Minneapolis, there are so many incredible musicians. I would describe it as like a player's town. Like there's a lot of players in town. And, and a lot of people that make a living just playing music out and never tour outside of uh, you know a 50-mile radius. So part of that... What I've always thought is a contributing factor is in those six months of winter where it's like kind of not fun to go outside unless you're snowboarding or skiing or like doing some sort of outdoor sledding, whatever. It's just like one of the things that we can do for hours on end in the winter is sit inside and practice our instruments. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess like it's probably some truth to that as well. Like I, I agree. But do you have like the thing in Minneapolis as well, like that the sun sets like really early? No, we don't have that here. Uh, in Sweden, like in December, November, like in uh, in Stockholm, like the sun sets at two p.m. or something. Like it's dark all the time. Like in the northern part of Sweden, like the sun doesn't even go up for a month, and like it's pitch black all the time. So, like, I guess, like, yeah, it's good to find a hobby then. <laughs> yeah. The earliest the sun goes down is, like, 435 here. But still, that's okay. like, oh, man, come on. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the summer is, like, the opposite, where the sun, like, kind of don't go down at all. So, like, you have uh, both ways of it. I, I think, like, um, when it's been dark like that, I guess, yeah, you sit inside and do stuff. Yeah, totally. As far as being from Sweden and English as your second language, a lot of Swedish acts, they, they write their tunes, their music is in English. Is there certain things that you feel 
actually are an advantage to you writing in English because it's your second language? We probably make a lot of grammar errors in our lyrics and stuff like that. But I think with our lyrics, I wouldn't say that our lyrics are great in any way, but it's we have like a specific way of doing them. It's just like whenever like we make demo songs, we try to keep the vowels of the demo song mm. and write lyrics so that it's the same vowels everywhere. Yeah. Which is kind of like it could be like weird to come up with, but it's more about the phonetic sound than it is about like the meaning of the lyrics in for our sake. I think like one thing that Swedish writers might do with English is that they put endings in a weird place because they're not familiar with the language. And that could be kind of cool because I I heard that like uh, on Max Martin songs as well. Like uh, some of the stuff is like, oh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, there's probably some American that did it. Like, I don't really know how to do it, but it's just like it might be something that has to do with uh, the Swedish language. But I don't know. Like, could be. <laughs> yeah, I I noticed that in a lot of Max Martin tunes, or even in certain, I think less with Sigrid, who, uh, for people that don't know, she's a Swedish artist, or an artist from Sweden, right? And there are certain things, it's like, that doesn't quite make perfect sense the way that I would think. Like, I wouldn't word it that way, but it sounds so cool. And it sounds so right for this song. It just, like, works as something. So I think... That actually, to me, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's something I've thought. And yeah, I mean, I can attest to, you know, when, when you first sent me the lyric ideas and, and uh, vocal ideas for Follow the Light, I was like, um, these, there's a handful of things in here to me that don't quite make sense. And then we changed them. It was like, and you guys were like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, 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 this. Oh, yeah, this makes sense. Or uh, let's try to keep this because I like the way this sounds. Or is there another word that fits the same but has this vowel sound? You know, I, I liked that process of of writing because what what it forced me to do with you saying, I want these same vowel sounds. It's like, okay, now let me rethink lyrical and po- poetic uh, ideas and concepts, but all surrounding this vowel. You know, all of a sudden it was like a new a challenge, like a game, you know, and it, yeah. it was fun. I, I'm really happy with, with how that one turned out lyrically. Yeah, me too. Like, I think it, it was great. But yeah, like uh, I think like with uh, the English language for Swedish also, like uh, I think uh, the Scandinavian countries are kind of like different from the rest of the European countries because we don't overdub uh, TV series. So people hear English. But I mean, yeah, everybody in Sweden, like including myself, has a huge accent. But uh, it's still like, I guess uh, we have a better vocabulary than like if you go further south in Europe on average, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's one bass player we need to we need to geek out on a little bit here. Flea. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, I, that was basically one of the reasons I started playing bass, so... Dude, me too. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely love Flea. His energy, the, the lines, the creativity, just the, the drive. What, what are your top three favorite Flea bass lines? Uh, I gotta think. I mean, airplane is one of them because that was like where I, where I got into the slap bass thing. And uh, there is like one song of Blood Fear Sex Magic called uh, Major Slinky and B Major or B something major. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really did it, but did it, but did it. Yeah, it's I, I like that one as well. And 
I like the I like the bass line with the chords in Blood Sugar Sex Magic as well. Yep. So those yeah. would be my top three. Maybe like Power of Equality as well. I, I don't know. Like there's a lot of them. Like that was really my bread and butter when I started playing bass. But it was a funny thing. Like I did this like uh, school thing in Ireland with a bass player called Federico Malaman from Italy, and Joe Dart played there as well. And we like the three of us went talking backstage. And like uh, all of us like started playing bass because of Flea. And it was like, oh yeah, I started because of him. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And it was just like, oh really? I, I had no idea. I think like a lot of people our age, like uh, kind of like got started uh, mm-hmm. playing bass because of him. Like I think it's pretty common. Yeah, I started on bass. I, before I was a guitar player, I started on bass and it's because of Flea. Yeah. Flea and Les Claypool. Yeah, same for me. Les Claypool was the other like big guy <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I first heard the aeroplane bass line, I just freaked out. And then the only time I freaked out more about that song is when I heard a radio edit and they edited out the bass solo. I was yeah, I so know, upset. Like, I was yeah. so upset. The the video is like also like it's half the bass solo or something. Like, yeah, the bass solo has been cut for time. Like, come on. <laughs> it like builds in such a perfect it's so great that one an, another one off of that just because i gotta keep geeking on flea walkabout is another uh, great yeah, yeah. baseline that one is one where i really learned how to play that kind of minor two five thing like the c minor to f7 like having different lines and how he kind of um you know he plays basically the same line but with minor variations in it yeah. You know, that one's a great one. Aeroplane, all of Blood Sugar Sex Magic for me. Like, uh, you know, Under the Bridge is such interesting bass playing for a ballad. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. And then like riff-based bass lines, like on Suck My Kiss. Yeah, I remember also like that one note thing on Funky Monks is really nice as well. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that that whole album to me is it's still that's in my top five favorite albums of all time. Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Just, Mine was like I got into them because of One Hot Minute. So I'm like the only Peppers fan that has like that album was my favorite. It's still like probably like my top like most influential album ever. And a lot of uh, people don't like that album, but it was really like that album was the one I listened to the most. And then I heard like I had Blood Sugar Sex Magic and got into it later on and then Mother's Milk and like the earlier stuff after that. But I, I really don't know what it was, but I, I, I really like uh, the One Up Minute album. I love that album too. A lot of people hate on it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, I, I think to this day, like if I'm making my Red Eye Chili Peppers playlist, I'm going to put on Aeroplane, Walkabout, My Friends. Yeah. For sure, those three are going up. Sometimes I'll put on Warped because that yeah, one's a nice. Yeah, I really like, like Warped as well. <laughs> yeah, that one's that. I think that's a sleeper of a, of an album. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, I would recommend it for people. What are some modern day bass players that you're really into? Uh, Anthony Jackson, I really like. Like, uh, I think he's been a huge inspiration for the way I'm comping on their loop stuff. Like, I always try to keep him in mind. I mean, like, it's kind of like also a record that a lot of people, I mean, probably a lot of people like it, but uh, 
master plan album by Dave Wickel was like uh, his first album. The bass mm. uh, lines on that one is amazing. And uh, uh, Anthony Jackson plays those. He, he did like some, uh, there's like a Michel Camilo record called One More Once, where also like, uh, where I think he plays absolutely amazing. Like it's pretty busy bass lines, but uh, they're really, really well orchestrated. So that's been a like a big influence for their loops. And uh, I guess Gary Willis on Tribal Tech also uh, was a very big influence. And then of course, like this list could like now take off and go forever. But like Jim Johnson, I mean, Victor Wooden has all obviously been a huge influence as well. And uh, Marcus Miller, like Nathan East. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of the modern players as well, like uh, Hadrian Ferroa, Mikkel Pipokinia, Junior Beginia. I mean, there's just like a lot of bass players, like Mohini Day. Like uh, there's a lot of bass players I listen to that I really enjoy. Yeah. Here's the thing that's funny about bass. So a lot of guitar players kind of write off the role of the bass. And a lot of artists too. Like there are certain, there's, there's different approaches to types of bass players. The bass players you're talking about are like bass player, bass players. A lot of people think that the role of the bass in the band is like, oh yeah, just like kind of outline the harmony, play the low notes to really anchor the harmony. And it's like, you don't need to be good. To me, it's like the bass player has to be dope. Like even just like the, our conversation of me, like the, the one of the reasons why I play music is because of Flea and Les Claypool. And even like, like uh, the album Dookie, where Mike Dirt has some really interesting yeah, bass yeah. lines. Considering yeah, I really, I listened to that album a lot when I grew up as well. Was it Longview? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like to me, the bass is such a huge role, and it often is so underutilized. And I think, especially in modern pop music, there's a lot of modern pop music that there's great bass lines. But I'm I'm saying a complete sweeping generalization. I feel like the bass doesn't get its full potential. Now, of course, there's overuse of it in if something's inappropriate, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, depending on the context. But I don't know. I feel like there's different in different eras. There's been different things that like the bass, like what expectations are of it. Like in the in the '60s and '70s, you got the Jamersons, you got you know a lot of the Motown stuff where the bass line is much more interweaved in the arrangement and it's maybe a little more intricate. Yeah. A lot of the Carol K say, bass like, playing. Of course, like Jamerson and Jacko, like I didn't mention them because they're sure. kind of like given for every bass player, but you kind of forget to mention them, but they should also. <laughs> be, yeah, yeah, that's just a given. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's stuff in the 90s that had amazing bass lines. There's like some, a handful of outliers from 2000 onward. But I'm just curious, what do you think like the state of the bass. Where do you think where do you think the role of the bass player is going to fit in in popular music in the next 10 years? I don't know. Like it's really difficult uh, to to think about that because it could go in any direction. I mean, like especially with YouTube and everything, I feel feel that there are so many subgenres as well right now and like uh like uh, w- with uh, like the Kendrick Lamar records and stuff like that and the stuff that Thundercats cat does as well like it's uh i guess it's like kind of it's pop music but like really well orchestrated and yeah. uh, intricate and everything like but uh because he he's also like a really really awesome bass player i think and a great singer as well yeah i don't know like it's it's hard to tell but i don't know like it will be fun to follow the whatever happens i guess yeah 
I, I feel like, yeah, you're right. It could totally go in either direction. I'll say when I first heard that Dua Lipa song, Don't Stop Now, or Don't Start Now, Don't Start Now, I was just like, thank you. I don't care whether it's a real electric bass or whether it's no, a MIDI no. bass. Just somebody's using bass in a dope way on a song that is an absolute smash hit. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of synth bass players as well. Like, uh, Greg, I don't know, I never know how to pronounce his name, uh, like Greg Fillingays. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but like, he has done some of, some of my favorite bass lines as well, like uh, the We Can Work It Out thing on Wichita Khan. And uh, I think he played on Man in the Mirror as well, that has really. Uh, like uh, awesome synth bass. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I guess that's like something I did in my practice is try to transcribe those lines on electric bass and try to try to mimic it. I, I mean, a lot of the time, like when you play something that's like based uh, made for another instrument, it could like get you in new directions and try things you didn't. Yeah. Okay, but the state of the bass. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> To close up, I have a question that I like to ask uh, a lot of the guests, and it has to do with gear because people love gear. We all love gear, right? So what is one piece? I'm going to ask three questions this, three different price ranges. What is one piece of gear that everybody needs? Let's just keep it to bass players because the bass, I'll just leave it easy for you. What's one piece of gear that every bass player needs that's about... $20 $20 or less, 20 euros or less. Yeah, but I'm thinking about like something ridiculous, like a strap or something like that, but that's pretty obvious. But yeah, I would go like with one of those like uh, thing you cut, cut strings with, but that's like way cheaper than 20 bucks. But uh, like when you try to change strings and you don't have the thing where you could cut them off, you have to find like a knife or something. And it's- <laughs> Especially for bass strings, they're so thick. Yeah. But that's the thing that I'm usually like, that's in that price range that I'm usually usually the most annoyed of not having. I like, like that. That happens. So like, what, what's it called? Like a cutter? Like Just a string cutter. Yeah. Yeah, a string cutter. Yeah. yeah I normally have a, a string life. winder with a cutter on it. Yeah. Quick side tangent off of that. How often do you change your strings? Before every recording and usually before every gig. But when I practice, I'm super lazy. Like, I leave yeah. them on forever. Because, I don't know, like, I just don't... Uh, my string company, DR, like, uh, they asked me, like, a bunch, like, oh, have you run out of strings? And, like, no, not really. <laughs> uh, because it's, like, when I practice, it's just, like, yeah, I, I don't bother that much. I yeah. don't need to have, like, the perfect sound in order to practice. You know, it's interesting. Sonny T, the guy who plays, he's like one of my mentors. Yeah, he yeah. plays in my band with me. He also changes his strings very often, like almost before every gig and definitely before every recording session, which I had never heard of because so many of the bass players before that I played with, like Joe Dart holds a funeral anytime a string breaks. You know, it's like <laughs> he likes his strings on there forever. So it's funny to hear people's different uh, approaches to how long to keep the string on. Yeah, but I mean, for his sound, and like, I guess, like, if you have a guy like also a big influence, uh, Pino Palladino, I can't yeah. imagine that he changes his strings like very often. I might be wrong, but I don't think he does. But it's just like, I really enjoy, like, enjoy that sound of yeah. bass players. But it's just like, uh, for, for the stuff I do, like, and for the way I want it to sound with Dirt Loops, uh, for instance, like, it's a different kind of tone than those guys. But 
both Joe and Pino has like super great tones and uh, it's just a different vibe, I guess. I think I like on when I played passive four, I don't change the strings often either. It's it's a different uh, it's a different thing there. Like it's a different sound ideal as well. Yeah. Okay. Second question: piece of gear that every bass player needs about two hundred euros or less, two hundred dollars or less. I would say like this depends on your if you're into rock or if you're into like uh, other stuff. But either like an overdrive or an octaver, if you could get both. Like yeah. those things are, octavers are just like really nice to have on a gig. Which octaver do you like to have? Which do you uh, use? I I use two. Like I use an EBS thing for the active ones, but my I gotta say my and this is I'm not even endorsed by these guys, but there's a company called Three Leaf Audio that made like Tim LeFevre, also a really good bass player. He yep. had a signature octaver that has like a switch so you could like mute the clean signal and only get the mm. and it has like the tone knob is also like it it's it's very similar it's very similar to an oc2 if you turn it one way and to a yeah. mutron if you turn it the other way but it's just the i mean it's really audio really i think they make really they have a really good envelope filter and a really nice fuss as well they really just make all the bread and butter based pedals in a really good way and this is not like I'm not ex- endorsed by those guys. I just sure. want to shout out because I think they make really good products. Yeah. Okay. Octaver and overdrive. What overdrive do you use? I right now I use a dark glass overdrive, the vintage yeah. overdrive from dark glass, but it was like, uh, I really had a problem with overdrives a long time until I found that one, because a lot of them, I don't think that's the case anymore. But when I grew up, like, uh, they cut out bass frequencies a lot and this one doesn't yes. do that. So, like when this one is straight, it has the same volume and the same bass frequencies. And uh, that's just like, it's easy to to work with because of that. Totally. But, uh, the dark glass pedals are great, I think. Yeah, those guys make great stuff. Yeah, yeah. They do like your neural DSP, right, as well. It's kind Yeah, of the neural DSP, thing. dark glass, I think sister companies or something. I don't know. Yeah. But yes, neural DSP, that's why I have my plug-in. Yeah. And dark glass is one of the reasons why... I was like, oh yeah, I'm down with Neural DSP because I I got all their plugins, loved the way they sounded. It's like, well, what else are they involved in? And they sent me a couple of the pedals. It's like, oh dang, yeah, these guys are legit. So yeah. Last question: price is no issue. Any piece of gear, no, doesn't matter what the price. What is something every bass player needs? Like when it's like when it comes to the the thing that doesn't have like any limits. I think that depends on what. What you're selling, but I would go with like a really good instrument, like like for what you what you like. But that's hard, also. Like some, you could find like one of those like Japanese Fender basses that are pretty cheap. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, but I would go like definitely with like getting the best possible bass you could have because that's that's where the magic happens, I guess. Yeah. Like all the pedals and all the other like gadgets, like that's the thing like that needs to be good yeah well and i like how you said for you like the the best instrument for you at the beginning of that like find the absolute best instrument that works well for whatever it is that you're going for i think that's a great answer yeah i would say that cool i dig it well henrik thanks so much for being with us this is really awesome uh great to see you on another zoom call and we need to finally meet in person at some point (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I sure. cannot believe that we haven't actually hung out and played in person yet. 
yeah, yeah, it gotta happen. Like uh, yeah. as soon as I go to US or like you come to Europe, like let's make it happen. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, man. There you have it. I'm telling you, if you are not hip to Henrik, you got it. You got to get in. You got to get into this music. Dirty Loops is an incredible band. They are so good. And I can attest to you from listening to all the stems, oh my gosh, they are that good. We sent stuff back and forth a lot for this album that we did and incredible players and really nice people. So thanks for listening. This is a really fun season of the Wong Notes podcast. I'm super excited about it. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, it was with my absolute hero, Pat Metheny. The rest of the season has amazing guests as well. So smash that subscribe. Don't miss any episodes. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.